Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a captivating opening sentence. And with it, Mark states his theme, his purpose. Who is Jesus? This is the good news about Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of the living God. For the intended audience of Mark's gospel, this is significant. They are suffering Christians in Rome. They're being fed to lions for sport in the arena. This will be their great hope, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now in Mark, things happen very quickly. Jesus is baptized, he's tempted, and he's already calling his first disciples by verse 16. For Mark, there's no time or space for a a birth narrative of Jesus like Matthew or Luke. And there's no time like John does going all the way back to eternity past to show Jesus' presence in the beginning. Mark gets quickly to the identity of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. Over 40 times in his gospel, he uses the word immediately. He likes to move from one story to the next, like a series of breaking news stories, to say, here is Jesus, meaning Savior. Here is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah has come. And who is he but the very Son of the living God? This is who Jesus is, and this is Mark's theme. But there's a problem. And it's a reoccurring problem throughout Mark's gospel. The problem is blindness. And you can fill that in on your handout if you have a pen, or even you can write it at the top of your Bible in Mark's gospel, because this theme of blindness will help you to piece the whole gospel together. The problem is blindness. No one seems to be able to see who Jesus is. We see it firstly in the disciples' confusion. All throughout the gospel of Mark, the disciples do not get a great run in Mark. They're always a little bit confused. They never quite understand the lesson. They're a little bit dumb. And you see it from chapter 6 through to 8. If you want to turn there, I want to walk you through that. Uh, From chapter 6, verse 30, we see a scene that we've heard about very often in church. There's a hungry crowd. And this hungry crowd, they've been following Jesus. They've been listening to his teachers, teaching, and they've been healed by him. And so Jesus and his disciples go out to a desolate place. They follow him. And so they're far out from the cities and they're hungry. They're a crowd that needs to be fed. And the disciples are wondering how they're going to be fed. And you know the story. They collect up two lo- five loaves of bread and two fishes. Jesus multiplies it, blesses it. And all of the 5,000 and many more are fed and there are 12 baskets that are left over. Well, the disciples get an inward look at this. No, the crowd don't really know what has happened here, but the disciples, they see what Jesus has done. Well, from chapter 6, verse 45, the very next event is another big task for the disciples. They're rowing in a boat in a storm without Jesus. What does Jesus come and do? He comes and walks on the water but they do not recognize him. 
Jesus comes and he stills the wind and the waves and the disciples are astonished because, Mark tells us, they didn't understand about the loaves. They didn't understand who Jesus is. Well, in chapter 8, we see another hungry crowd. This time it's 4,000. And again, the disciples are asking, how are we going to feed them? How are we going to feed them? And you know the story. Jesus feeds the 4,000 and there are seven baskets left over. Well, again, 8, chapter 14, they get into a boat. And let me read to you chapter 8, verse 14. If you want to have a look at it, you can. The disciples are in the boat. So there's a hungry crowd, boat, hungry crowd, boat. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. So catch this. Jesus has fed the 5,000. Then he stills the wind and the waves. Then he feeds the 4,000. And then he gets into a boat again. And there's only one loaf of bread. And they begin discussing the fact that they have no bread. What are we going to do? We're going to be hungry. We don't have enough to go the journey. And Jesus says to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Have, have you eyes, but you do not see? Remember the theme is blindness. They do not see. You see what the problem here is, everyone? They do not see that Jesus is the all-sufficient one. And their lack of faith is blindness. And it's interesting that the very next thing that happens in, this, in chapter 8, verse 22, is that Jesus heals a blind man. But if you know the story, Jesus doesn't just heal him in one go. He touches the man's eyes once, but his vision is blurred, and then he touches his eyes again, and then he sees. And everyone always finds that story strange. Have you ever found that story strange? You're like, why didn't Jesus just heal him in one go? Well, this was a lesson for the disciples. You only have partial vision. Your eyes are blurry. You, you need to have your eyes open to who Jesus really is. And so as you go through Mark's gospel, you see the disciples are confused and you find yourself laughing at their stupidity. They always just seem to miss the point. But then you realize that this is us too, isn't it? How many times have we seen the faithfulness, the sufficiency of Christ in our lives? And yet again, we find ourselves in situations where we fail to see him. We fail to trust him. We forget that he's the all-powerful son of God. We have partial vision and small faith. We need to pray, Lord, touch our eyes again so that we may see you for who you truly are. So this is the first form of blindness. The disciples are confused. They need to see Jesus for who he is. The second thing we see is the religious rejection. Very quickly, as Jesus appears on the scene, we see rising hostility towards him from the religious leaders of Israel. As early as chapter 3, when Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, they are hostile towards him. They're lying in wait to catch him out. In chapter 3, verse 6, it says that they went and met with the Herodians to find out how they could destroy him. In verse 3, verse 22, when he cast out demons, they say, that he's done it in the name of Beelzebul, that he's demonic in his ministry. And chapter 14, verse 1 and 2, just before the Passover, the chief priests and the scribes, after all of this, they seek how they can arrest him by stealth and to kill him. There is rising hostility towards Jesus. 
Well, why? Well, it's blindness. You see, Jesus has upset their way of being righteous. Their way of being righteous is about observing the law and even adding to the law, that you can be righteous before God through your observance of the law. And so Jesus challenges their authority and their thinking. They grow jealous of him. They hate him and they reject him all the way to death as their Messiah. You see, you can't receive Jesus unless you're willing to admit that you have no righteousness of your own. And we're always seeking to form righteousness around something, our opinions or our views, and we form a righteousness. We form a pride. No one can be saved. No one can be right before God by forming your righteousness around something other than Jesus. That's blindness. We reject Jesus when we think that we have a righteousness of our own. Only Jesus Christ is the righteous one. And so the disciples are confused about Jesus, in confusion, and the religious reject Jesus, and this is blindness. In fact, the only people, it seems, in Mark who see who Jesus is is a very surprising group. It's the demons. You can fill in the blank, the demons' identification. Jesus has a significant ministry in Mark of casting out demons. And this is because Jesus wants to show his absolute authority over the kingdom of darkness. When Jesus arrives on the scene, he casts the demonic to the outer place. His kingdom casts out evil. We see in chapter 1, verse 34, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and he cast out demons and he would not permit the demons to speak of him. Notice it says in verse 34, because they knew him. They knew him. Verse, chapter 3, verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. Remember Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Who is Jesus? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. No one sees it. The demons see it. You are the son of God. No one sees it except the demons. They can see spiritually. And they shudder in his presence. In chapter 5, when Jesus casts demons out of a man, they beg to be sent into the pigs. They shudder in his presence. They cower at his authority. You know, it's amazing today to think that while many people on earth do not see Jesus for who he is, the demonic, the demons do. Satan sees him. James chapter 2, verse 19 backs this up. Even the demons see, believe, and they shudder. There is, of course, demonic power in the world today, but believers in Jesus do not have to fear because when Jesus comes, when his presence comes, draws near, he casts demons into the outer darkness. The demonic power in the world today, what is it seeking to do? It's seeking to obscure our view of who Jesus is. If the demonic powers in this world can make people think that Jesus is just a teacher or a prophet or he doesn't need to be taken that seriously, then they are succeeding. They do not want to reveal who Jesus is. And so we see the big theme here is blindness, the disciples' confusion, religious rejection. It seems that only the demons can see. But at exactly the halfway point of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 27, we see, point four, Peter's confession. Let me read it to you. Jesus was on the way with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, who do you people say that I am? Question of identity. And they told him, well, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others say one of the prophets. prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? 
Finally, the, the moment of this gospel arrives for someone to finally see Jesus, someone on earth to see him. Peter confesses in that moment, you are the Christ. And, and right here on this confession, everything in the gospel of Mark turns. It's a turning point of, on the, of the gospel. Right up to this point, everyone's trying to figure out who is Jesus. Upon this confession, Peter says, you are the Christ. And now from this point onwards, the gospel turns to reveal who this Jesus is and what he has now come to do. The first verse of Mark says that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then goes on to prove this. And then the second half goes on to say that this Son of God that Peter confesses in this moment is also a suffering servant. The Son of God has become the suffering servant. You see this as soon as Peter makes this confession in chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus says to Peter and the disciples that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. It's amazing. The final six chapters of Mark, almost half of the book, are spent detailing the final week of his life. Because in Mark, Jesus wants us to see that Jesus is the Son of God who has become our suffering servant. He is the promised one of Isaiah 53, the one who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now think for a moment for the Christians in Rome who are being fed to the lions for sport. They think on their saviour, the son of God has become the suffering servant and they see one who has also suffered and has suffered in their place. It's a great encouragement to them that the king has come and he has died in their place. And this is the very purpose of revealing Christ as the suffering servant, that we would understand the nature and the purpose of his kingdom. There's another big mistake that you see through the gospel of Mark, and that is that everyone or the religious leaders and the disciples of Israel, they think that Jesus has come to bring the kingdom now politically and through military might. But this is not the way that Jesus has come. Jesus has come as a suffering servant, one who's come to lay his life down because he's dealing with a bigger issue than Rome. He's dealing with the human heart, the sinfulness of our heart, the rejection of God. He's come to overcome death. And overcomes Satan. And so in Mark 10, 45, which could be considered the pinnacle verse of this book, Jesus says that the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What is a ransom? A ransom is putting up the payment, the demanded payment that ultimately sets the captive free. And this is a totally different mindset about how the kingdom comes. The kingdom would not come through political uh, shows of strength or human strength. It would actually come through the king of all kings of the universe coming and laying his life down for us. And because he has, because he has released us and set the captives free, Mark's gospel goes on to define what it means that we ought to follow him that we ought to follow him in the same kind of way. Many people think that the Christian life or following Jesus is joining some kind of life improvement program, some kind of successful living, self-help group. But the life of following Jesus does not necessarily mean worldly success. In fact, it is a call to die. 
It's a call to die to yourself, and this is the radical nature of following Jesus. Uh, Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone, in Mark chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross, just as Jesus is going to, and to follow him. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? What a challenge. What a challenge for us in thinking about following the suffering servant. You know, if I was to win the lotto and to go on and experience and accumulate everything that I could in this earth, every experience that I could have, if I had all the world at my disposal, I could go wherever and experience whatever. What would it, good would it be if I was to finish my life and at the end of my life have no one to commend me before God, the Father, to go into an eternity with him? What would, good would that have been to have lived a life like that? And so Mark calls us to a radical form of discipleship of Jesus, the Son of God, who has become the suffering servant who has paid our ransom, he says, pick up your cross and follow me. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Follow him. Wherever Jesus goes, whatever he calls you to do, no matter the cost, leave the world behind you and follow after Jesus. This involves the denial of self, the crucifying of the flesh, but the hope for every believer who follows after Jesus is what comes after suffering. What comes after suffering is glory. The fifth point there on your handout is the Messiah's affirmation of his identity. He's standing before the chief priests and they ask him, are you the Christ? Another statement of identity. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And we hear the Messiah's affirmation and hear this in your ears. These are the words of Jesus, the most important words. Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Whatever they are to do with him, which is to crucify him and to put him to death, it is purposed by him to go through his suffering, become the suffering servant and ascend to glory. And he has ascended to glory. And his promise is that we will see him coming on the clouds to bring together all those who have repented and believed, to collect them together to be part of his physical, visible kingdom. And that's what Mark chapter 13 is all about. It's notoriously difficult to understand. Go and read it. But the gist of it is this earth, this kingdom is perishing. It is passing away. But for all those who repent and believe, Christ is coming with power on the clouds to bring a new kingdom, to collect all those who have believed in him, to bring about a kingdom that is now invisible, but one day will be visible. One day we'll we will rule and reign with him in a new heavens and a new earth in a kingdom that belongs to him. So who is Jesus? The disciples are confused. Religious reject him. The demons identify him. Peter confesses him. The Messiah affirms this is who he is. And this is the promise for all those who believe I'm coming on the clouds. Well, finally, Mark ends with an interesting, unlikely confession. As Jesus hung on the cross, he breathes his last. There's a Roman centurion who stands guard 
at the foot of the cross. And as he watched Jesus breathe his last, he says these words, truly, this man was the son of God. This is the centurion's revelation. The theme of this gospel is blindness. And right at the end of this gospel, the centurion has his eyes opened to see a Gentile, not one of the people of God, an outsider has his eyes open to see truly, truly, this is Jesus, the son of God. Mark's gospel has a very strange ending in chapter 16. It's so strange that scholars have thought that some of the material after verse 8 in chapter 16 needed to be added to complete it properly. That some of the followers of Jesus are there at the tomb and they're told by the angel to go and to meet Jesus just as he had told them to after he arose. But look at their response and how this gospel ends. And they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid, full stop. It's not a very tidy ending. That's how Mark's gospel ends. But as people run away in fear from the tomb, Mark is actually asking us, the reader, well, how will you respond? Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he just a teacher, a man, a prophet, someone, historical figure, like other amazing historical figures? Or is he the son of God who has become the suffering servant for you? He came not to be served, but to serve, to serve you, to wash you and cleanse you of your sins. By his stripes, we are healed. He's come to pay your ransom. How will you respond? Will you run away in fear? Or will you mock him or consider it not to be that significant? Or will you pick up your cross and follow him? This is Mark's gospel in a nutshell. Will you pick up your cross and will you follow after Jesus? I want to invite you to bow your heads as we close. I want to share just the personal impact of this gospel for me over this past month is that I've been wondering whether I've been a confused disciple someone with partial vision, blurry vision, not beholding. Jesus, the Son of God, who has come and suffered in my place. Because if this is true, if Mark chapter 1 verse 1 is true, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If that is true, just think about that for a moment. That ought to change everything about our lives. That ought to upend everything about our lives, to make everything in our life now revolve around Him. And that's what you see happen in Mark. Everyone that gets called by Jesus, they leave their family behind. They leave their employment and their work behind if it's going to mean getting in the way of following Jesus. Jesus redefines the family in this gospel, and I've wondered over the summer break that I've had, am I seeing this? And am I 
picking up my cross and following after Jesus? Is he upending the hard places of my heart? Is he truly changing me? Am I truly following after him? Picture of Jesus in Mark is one who breaks into your life. He breaks in, he heals, he transforms, he produces faith. The picture of Jesus in Mark is that he actually sends you out with nothing in your hand, no money in your belt. And he calls you to serve and not to be served, to follow him into his death. But knowing that after death comes resurrection life. That's how we truly live. Free. Knowing that after suffering comes glory. I've just wondered if I've forgotten that. If I need, I've needed to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I need you to touch my eyes again so that I can see. And that my life would be different. And you would take me on to a deeper discipleship, a deeper following over you. Father, I pray that you might open our eyes because we are prone to confusion and even rejection. Lord, our eyes are so often blind and blurry and our mind is set on earthly things. Lord, I pray that you might open our eyes, that you might heal us of this sickness and this blindness, that we may seek to center our whole life upon you. I pray, Lord, for anyone here this morning who recognizes they have blurry vision. They would come and ask for your grace and your mercy to be poured out on their life, that their eyes might be opened to the glory of Jesus, the Son of God who became our suffering servant to pay our ransom, debt that we couldn't pay. Oh, Lord, may our hearts be filled with life and joy, the privilege that it is to follow after Christ. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has not yet made that decision that maybe this morning they might decide, I want to follow after Jesus. I want to make him my Lord and King. I'm a sinner. I need healing of my sin, forgiveness of my sin. I invite you right now in your heart to call upon his name. He forgives freely to all those who ask him. He's willing to to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what it is, to cover us, to give us his righteousness and to take us on a new journey, a new path, one that leads to his imperishable kingdom, one of eternity, life with him. Just call upon his name this morning in your heart. Oh Lord, I pray that you might bring salvation, that you might bring Revival to our hearts this morning. Lord, as we go through this gospel of Mark, help us to understand and know what it means to follow him more and more, that we daily pick up our cross, that we'd seek not to be served, but to serve in the likeness of our Saviour. And I pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together. Let's lift our voices.